Welcome back to the Foreign Policy Provcast. I'm your host, Mark Melton. In today's episode, we will speak with Olivia Enos about different North Korea human rights issues, including North Koreans being trafficked through China, religious persecution, and other violations. We'll also talk about the implications of North and South Korea reuniting and what the United States can do to prepare for this possibility. Olivia is a research associate in the Asia Studies Center at the Heritage Foundation, who specializes in human rights and transnational criminal issues, including human and drug trafficking, religious freedom, and other social and humanitarian challenges in Asia. Previously, she has written in Providence about Syrian refugees in Lebanon and how Lebanese Christians have helped them there. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast, whether through iTunes, SoundCloud, or elsewhere. If there's a particular podcast service you enjoy that we don't currently publish on, let us know by tweeting at us, at Prov Magazine. Also, be sure to visit our website, ProvidenceMag.com. Again, I'd like to give special thanks to Joseph Rossell for producing this episode. Olivia, we are here today to talk about North Korea. So first off, I want to thank you very much for speaking with us today. Thank you for having me. So my first question is if you could summarize some of the human rights situation in North Korea. Absolutely. So in 2014, the United Nations Commission of Inquiry released a report that determined that North Korea was guilty of committing crimes against humanity. And as such, they detailed a number of different human rights issues that North Korea experiences. Arguably, some of the most pernicious are the prison camp situation where there are between 70,000 and 120,000 individuals in labor camps today. But beyond that, they also outlined a number of issues with human trafficking. To some extent, they, the report also found that China was guilty of aiding and abetting North Korea in crimes against humanity, in particular for their policy of forcibly repatriating North Koreans who have sought freedom in China back to North Korea. And so you had mentioned like religious persecution. Are there other religious groups other than Christians who are being persecuted in these camps? Or what types of people are going to these prison camps? Yeah, absolutely. So when you look at the prison camp situation, and when you look at internally inside North Korea, there isn't very much Christian faith. There is a government-condoned Catholic church there, and then there, I believe, are a couple of maybe Buddhist um organizations that are allowed to operate, but these are very surface-level, faith-based groups. Um, Many of the people who end up going back to both political prison camps or traditional prison places who are of faith are individuals who went to China, met maybe missionaries from South Korea, from the West, and then when they came back, um, when they were forcibly repatriated by China, North Korean defectors are asked two questions. One, did you come in contact with any South Koreans? And two, did you have any contact with Christian missionaries? If the answer to either of those questions is yes, then they are sent and face greater levels of persecution in either the political prison camp or in regular prison, which of course there's unbelievable abuse occurring in both of those settings. And so uh, how many of these people are, you know, repatriated? And then I'm assuming because we, you know, know some of the stories you just mentioned that some of them still escape again. Is Does that happen? Or are we learning about these stories through other people who escape and then tell us about it? Yeah, so 
We don't know the precise number of individuals who were repatriated by China. We do, however, know that there are between 100,000 and 200,000 North Korean defectors that are in the China region. Now, some North Koreans, depending on their geographical proximity to the Chinese border, regularly cross over the border to engage in black market activities in China and then bring those goods back to North Korea. Those people are often able to evade having to go to prison cancer or otherwise um, because the border guards, they request bribes. Um, so, but of the individuals that we've heard these stories, it's primarily through defector testimony. Some people do go back in uh, to North Korea, as I mentioned, but the vast majority are people who have escaped and then have heard these stories. We also have testimony from prison guards and from border guards who firsthand witnessed the type of interrogation that North Koreans undergo when they're forcibly repatriated by China. And I understand that you've had an event recently at Heritage uh, where you had some defectors who were trafficked in China. Could you tell us a little bit more about that event? Sure. So we had three defectors to the Heritage Foundation for an event looking at North Korean human rights issues and then human trafficking of North Koreans in China. The three women were Kim Jong-ah, Lee Young-hee, and Huang Hyun-jong. And uh, Kim Jong-ah in particular is very interesting. Um, she's a mother. She had four children. And unfortunately, she is only able to see one of those four children today. The first child was um, left behind in North Korea and actually taken by her in-laws. They refused to allow her to take her daughter to freedom. The second baby she had while she was in North Korea, but unfortunately due to malnutrition, the baby ended up dying. The third child she had when she made her first escape attempt to China, she was forcibly married to a Chinese man. And that child, when she had to escape to freedom in South Korea, that child was left with her husband because it was too risky and her husband would not allow her to take the child to South Korea. So she unfortunately has very little contact with that child. And that story is all too common among many North Korean women who are forced to marry Chinese men. And then when the Chinese authorities discover them, they threaten forced repatriation. So really the only choice is to move on to freedom in South Korea or be sent back to North Korea and face the persecution that I outlined earlier. Hmm. The other uh, defectors at the event, did they have children as well? They did. So all of them had children with a Chinese man and all of them were forced to leave their children behind in China. And in some cases, the um, individual uh, husbands either don't allow them to ever see their kids again and tell their kids basically that they abandoned them, which was not the case. They were seeking freedom in South Korea and unfortunately were not able to take their children because in, in many cases, the husbands were saying that they had to keep the children in China. But this is why Kim Jong-ah, the first defector that I mentioned, started a new organization called Song Mam. And the organization is based in South Korea, and its intention is to represent North Korean defector moms who aren't able to see their children in China. They're trying to advocate for a number of different reforms that would make it easier for them to reconnect with their families there. Mm. 
is it very common for these women to be forced into marriage once they're discovered in China? Or are, is there a network that tries to sneak them in and then forces them into marriage? Like, how does that process actually work for them? So the numbers, as far as human trafficking goes, are quite shocking. Um, of the total number of defectors that flee North Korea, 75% are women. And of that 75%, between 70 and 90% end up in a human trafficking situation, whether that's serving in a brothel, forcibly uh, in prostitution, or forced to marry Chinese men. We hear this fairly often. I don't have precise numbers on the number of women forced to marry Chinese men, but we do know that it's, it's a pretty high number. And where in China do they go? Are they geographically located closer to North Korea? Are they spread out across China? Are they trafficked into any other countries? Usually the women are near the Chinese-North Korean border, um, and that's where they will get picked up by a broker, a human trafficker, and then they're sold on the market. It's, it's quite appalling that they're sold on the market, and then a Chinese man takes them, and wherever the Chinese man lives, he'll take these women, but I would assume that many of them live quite near the border. And then, yes, North Korean women get trafficked beyond China. Um, also in Southeast Asia, it's not uncommon for North Koreans to be taken there. I would note that a lot of the problems that North Koreans experience surrounding trafficking have to do with Chinese policies. First of all, the one-child policy, which was recently changed to the two-child policy, has created a gender imbalance, which is why you have so many North Korean women in this situation. But then, too, the situation where the, the moms cannot see their children is created because China maintains a policy of forcible repatriation of the North Korean defectors, just technically in violation of international law, of which they're a signatory to the Refugee Convention. So why does China do this, do you think? Why does China enable a lot of these North Korean human rights violations? So China has a trading relationship with North Korea and, frankly, an alliance relationship with North Korea where they do have certain benefits that they provide to one another. I think one potential explanation is that North Korea is, you know, much worse in terms of the human rights situation that's experienced there than China. So to some extent, North Korea is a, de is a distraction from Chinese provocations, for example, in the South China Sea, or their activities with South Korea or Japan, if, if all of our focus is on mitigating concerns from North Korea, we have less time to focus on addressing issues in China. Um, so I think it's, it's both a partnership of convenience, but then also an ability to detract um, from China's own poor human rights record. One of the things that's talked about in D.C. occasionally is the idea of unification of the Korean Peninsula and how it is probably not going to happen. It's kind of an ideal, and it's assumed, at least in the West, that the South would have a dominant role, but I'm certain that China would have a different vision of how unification would look like. And do you see any plausible path for unification of the Korean Peninsula? And how would these human rights violations play into that you know, reconciliation process that would have to occur afterwards? Mark, 
reunification is sort of the million dollar question you know how that will happen when that will happen if that will happen are huge huge questions but regardless of of how it happens or when it happens the u.s needs to have solid plans along with its alliance south korea in place that are substantive contingencies to address these challenges one of the least developed aspects of contingency planning is the humanitarian component if you have a collapse of North Korea, regardless of the circumstances under which it happens, you're likely to have a significant influx of North Korean refugees either into South Korea or staying within the geographic North Korean region. You have to have a plan that is developed to address that. And when you talk to officials in South Korea and you look at open source material here in the U.S., it becomes very clear that the amount of contingency plans that we have in place are fairly limited. And if you were to be advising anyone on types of contingency plans, what would be some of your top priorities for those plans? So I think it's important to break down contingency planning between long-term and short-term contingency planning. In the immediate term, right after collapses happened, it's essential that we get individuals out of the prison camp situation. When you look to what happened during Nazi Germany, the Nazis tried to erase all evidence that they had concentration camps. It's not unlikely that the North Korean government would try to do the same. So it's essential that we have individuals, especially the military, prepared to evacuate people that are in the most vulnerable of situations like those individuals in the prison camps. But beyond that, there's a need to plan for how food aid will come into play um, for who gets relocated and where they get relocated into South Korea versus those who will stay. And then you have long-term plans, things like education uh, provision and a recognition that these people have lived under a regime that taught them basically an alternate universe of ideals and norms. And so they have to unlearn a lot of the things that, that they were taught in the North Korean system. So providing an educational system is essential. Secondly, uh, for long-term planning, you have to figure out what works best for assimilation of this population into South Korea. Today, there are between 20 and 30,000 North Korean defectors living in South Korea. We can use some of the indicators that we have from their assimilation experience to inform ours in the future. And yeah, you mentioned that North Koreans have been taught a lot of different ideals. Their educational system has taught them different norms. How much do they know about the outside world and where are they getting that information? So as black market access has grown in North Korea, a number of different materials have gotten smuggled into North Korea that help to some extent to offset the formal education that they receive in North Korea. In North Korea, uh, the average student is taught that the U.S. is basically ready to pull the trigger on a major war or attack. Um, they're taught that South Korea is, is in a similar position. They're taught that any forms of sort of commercial development or free market growth are negative things. They're taught all of these things that are, are contrary to what is true. But you will hear from individuals who have chosen to flee North Korea, North Korean refugees, that access, for example, to uh, Western literature or to watching a South Korean drama 
have actually enlightened them and opened up their mind that maybe South Korea or maybe the United States are not as bad as they may have thought. Maybe what they're living in North Korea is actually a nightmare and not the dream that they're told that it is. Are we seeing more defections today than we have in the past, or is it about the same level? So it depends. Over the past 10 years, there have been fluctuations in the amount of defections that have occurred. And to some extent, that's based off of Kim Jong-un's policies at the border. He has had intermittent times of clamping down on the border and then other times where he's been more lax. Over the past two years or so, he has tightened the border to some extent, but we still are seeing a number of defections, including high-level defections of government or military officials. One of the things I've heard about North Korea, and I don't know how true it is, so maybe you can enlighten me, but it sounds like in Pyongyang, it's a lot of people who favor the regime, but like outside, you probably have more North Koreans in the more rural areas, but they're separated enough that it's hard for them to interact and to form any type of resistance to the regime. Is that accurate? So people who live in Pyongyang are generally among the elite. So they receive better treatment, better pay, more food than the average North Korean. They have access to luxury goods and other products that the average North Korean doesn't. I think in general, we tend to see more defections from people who live along the border because it's quite easy to get over the border to China, for example, especially if you're doing black market activities. So I think that the vast majority of defectors probably do come from along the border region. However, as I mentioned, there have been high-level defections where people in government have defected when they've gone to embassies, for example. So diplomats would defect, um, or we've had high-level military people who slipped across the border, and those people would have had access to Pyongyang if not lived in Pyongyang directly. Like, how do you think the North Korean people would react to unification with the South? So I think that, you know, the default assumption is that everyone would be really excited. But I think in the short term, there would be quite a lot of confusion. North Koreans have been told that life in North Korea is is not bad, that it's the norm. And so undoing a lot of those misconceptions and lies that they have been fed for a long time will take time. So some may be more likely to embrace reunification than others. I would note one other caveat. The individuals who serve in government positions may fear that they'll be taken to the International Criminal Court for crimes against humanity because the UN report recommended that North Korea be referred to the ICC. What will be so important in the event of a reunification or a collapse is to ensure that we target the people who are not just carrying out the orders of their superior, but are individuals who architected this system of human rights abuse. Because you're going to have to co-opt some of the people who may have been involved in these activities, but were merely taking orders to provide order in the next system or the next government that exists. Otherwise, you'll have a mutiny or you'll have people who are really strongly objecting and not willing to go along with the reunification scenario. Is there, do you think, a divide you know, in either the South or the North between the younger generation and older generation? So I think that would actually be more true of individuals in South Korea 
so um, many people in the older generation felt very strongly about reunification, and some had family members who were on the other side of the border. The younger generation is more apprehensive about reunification because they've enjoyed a South Korea that has grown incredibly economically. It's flourishing. It's wealthy. They have access to all the modern amenities. And reunification, in their minds, could threaten what is their normal livelihood. So there is some resistance in the younger generation to having reunification, but I think if a solid plan is put in place, especially for economic integration and development, I think that in the long term, South Korea or Korea Unified will be better off as a whole. Not to say there won't be problems in the short term. And what do you think the U.S. can do to influence events in North Korea? You've mentioned like we need to have contingency plans, but what other recommendations might you have? Well, for one thing, the United States needs to continue its support for the U.S.-South Korea alliance. It's essential not only to security on the Korean Peninsula, but also to security in the entire Asia-Pacific, which is in the U.S. interest. So affirming that alliance is really important. Second, the United States should highlight the human rights challenges that are going on in North Korea. Recognizing that China has a role to play in the human rights abuse is essential. So calling upon China, as Heritage actually does in a forthcoming paper on the two-child policy, the U.S. should call on China to rescind or walk back its two-child policy in a meaningful sense. It should also call upon China to discontinue its forced repatriation of North Korean defectors. Third and finally, it should be encouraging South Korea to really focus on assimilation and developing those contingency plans as we discussed earlier. We have a perfect set of individuals, 20 to 30,000 North Korean defectors presently living in South Korea. They provide a model and form a basis for us addressing potentially larger problems in the event of reunification. That covers all the questions I had. Is there anything else that you want to add or anything that you wish I had asked but didn't actually ask? One sort of final smaller thing, this is a little more niche of an issue, is that I think it's important for the international community to recognize that the number of human rights abuses occurring in North Korea are immense. In the UN Commission of Inquiry report that found North Korea guilty of crimes against humanity, they listed a number of different human rights abuses. And I think that there's apparatus within the U.S. government to address a lot of these challenges. For example, the State Department Trafficking in Persons Office, they can do more to galvanize efforts to address human trafficking from North Korea and in North Korea. I also think that the International Religious Freedom Office can do more by, for example, not double-hatting sanctions against North Korea. So often they're not uniquely sanctioned for religious freedom violations. They just get subsumed under other sanctions regimes. So that's another example where pre-existing structures within the U.S. government could better address a lot of the issues facing North Korea. But finally, I guess I would just say there should be an exploration of the legal tools available to address the crimes against humanity issue. It's a huge issue, and I think it's something that more people, the average American, should care about because this is one of the most significant human rights issues facing the world today. Well, I mean, this is all very fascinating topic, um, very 
very sad too. The ever, the trafficking of the women um, that you mentioned, and uh, the forced marriages. That's some uh, topics that I didn't quite grasp with how big um, that is. Like you said, seventy to ninety percent of the women were um, in human trafficking situations. Yeah, and and, and estimates suggest that there are as many as 1.1 million men, women, and children that are trafficked in North Korea today, and that in China, that number is even higher at 3.4 million. So, Olivia, uh, thank you very much for yeah. calling in. I know you have things you have to get to later today. <laughs> and so, thank you. This was so great, and I'm glad that I could talk to you. I hope it was helpful. Well, thank you very much. Bye.